In a conversation recorded just before Christmas, I talked to Simon Harrington of PIMFA and my colleague from the Landcat, Mike Barrett, about the FCA's new consumer duty regulatory proposals. We talk about whether it will work, what it will cost, who will be affected, and the potential benefits. We also establish the consumer duty is essentially a replay of Bill and Ted's philosophy of be excellent to one another. There we go. I've never done a three-way like that before, so this is quite exciting for me. It's it's always a lot more disappointing than you imagine it to be, Tom. <laughs> I will take your word for it. <laughs> I'm really pleased to get you both on to do this, partly because you've both done the heavy lifting of reading the 240-page paper, which meant I didn't have to. I've read, I've read about half of it. I've skimmed through it. There was a lot in there. There is great in there, but there's a lot in there. And I, I mean, we'll get onto this, but there's a lot in there and it doesn't really say very much at all to the extent that the conclusion that I've basically come to on the consumer duty is that what it sort of says doesn't really matter. And actually the important thing about the consumer duty is actually kind of what it represents Mm-hmm. in terms of sort of the direction of travel of regulation and supervision as a whole. Just unpack that. What, what do you think that's telling us? What I think it uncovers, and I think it especially sort of uncovers in this industry in particular, is the sort of ongoing tension of sort of how you look at your business from a strategic perspective and how you look at your business from a compliance perspective, right? So if you are speaking to a regulatory compliance nerd, right, what they want is they want prescriptive regulation, which basically it's sort of, you know, choose your own adventure. If you want to do X, you should do Y. If you do Y, you have to do Z. Yeah, here's the list of regs you have to comply with and boxes you have to take. Which compliance people love, and also specifically, and, and, and I think this is sort of a tension going forward, smaller businesses like, because if you are a small business, you do not have like a significant budget to spend on massive compliance departments to tell you whether or not you are doing the right or wrong thing. But what the consumer duty is at its sort of very kind of heart, at its core, is its principles-based regulation, right? It is, you know, be excellent to each other, do the right thing. And provided that you are happy that you are doing that and you are discharging your duties in, in the right way towards your end consumers, then we think that that will be okay. Obviously, you have to evidence that and you have to review it and you will have to make significant changes and they may cost money in the short to medium term. But that is ultimately what the SEA is doing here. They are basically saying, right, it is your job to ensure that you are sort of going out of your way to put your customer at the forefront of what you do going forward. And around all of that, we will construct a sort of superior regulatory framework which ensures that bad actors in the first instance don't enter the market, which I think is interesting. So just again, and this is all really interesting, so I don't want to work away, but what, what do you mean by prevent bad actors from entering in the first place? Well, so again, so what the consumer duty is really, for firms that are already operating, is 
for the vast majority of firms, they were already doing what was required of them under the consumer duty because they were discharging their responsibilities under principle six and seven and to a lesser extent treating customers fairly, right? So what the consumer duty is for them is a reminder of their responsibilities and perhaps in some instances, less so in our industry, to maybe sort of beef up their processes somewhat and consider what they do going forward. Where it sort of becomes interesting in sort of the bad actors is that the FCA, by dint of its sort of business plan, and as you sort of referenced, Steve, the consumer investment strategy work, is putting a significant amount of stock in sort of the authorization process, in ensuring that people who maybe previously were able to enter the market doing one thing, but then sort of change their business plan very, very quickly as a result of various factors, will be subject to sort of significant supervision in a way that they weren't previously, which should mean that those people who basically enter the market and end up doing the wrong thing, either because they want to or because they don't know what they're doing, should be cut out significantly sooner than they are currently. Whereas those firms that have been operating in the market for a very long time continue to do the right thing, want to do the right thing, will largely be able to continue to do so, but in some instances at a higher level to the ones that they've previously been doing as the direct result of the consumer duty. Right, okay. Thanks for that. I like the idea of it being a, a, a Bill and Ted piece of regulations. It's like, yeah, I mean, be excellent. Is. So let's just rewind quickly. Mike, you've been sort of patient there. For the record, just, just walk us through. So we've got that overriding principle of a firm must act to deliver good outcomes for retail customers. And that's the headline, right? So, but then they talk about cross-cutting rules and outcomes. Just kind of walk us through that. Yeah, so I think I certainly agree with everything Simon says and particularly kind of looking at it from the lens, which I'm, I'm not sure is necessarily exactly where Simon operates of, of a, a kind of a nerdy compliance specialist. But also I think, I guess, to contrast that and, and, and to answer your question, Tom, I, I tend to look at things more from from the consumer's perspective. And I think the, the consumer duty is kind of a, a meeting in the middle of, around all of this, I think. So from a consumer's perspective, I think the, the regulator is reflecting that there are good outcomes out there. And there are firms who kind of are consistently prioritizing firms and prioritizing consumers and doing that all of the time, doing that in the right way. But across the board, it's fairly inconsistent. And yeah, are they actually sufficiently putting those their efforts into doing all of that stuff and then i think from a consumer's point of view you look at pretty much every piece of research that's out there around kind of advice gaps and trust in various sectors and industry and financial services tends to be somewhere around kind of a level of mps and journalists and estate agents and yeah all of those desirable professions so there's a, there's a lot of work i think that's financial services generally needs to do to to improve trust and confidence and i think for me consumer duties kind of is intended to address that i again agree agreeing with simon i think the vast majority of firms and particularly in the advice sector or albeit this goes way beyond just just financial advisors but the vast majority of advice firms i know are kind of up for this i think there's a little bit of kind of grumpiness about kind of a little bit more regulation and a little bit more 
process and stuff to learn to make sure you are exactly compliant. But the heart of what's being talked about here and this kind of this thrust to to become a kind of a turn the advice industry into into a profession pretty much every advisor i know is is kind behind that already and would support that and if you're a profession you're constantly and continuously looking to improve what you're doing and do the best thing for for your customers so again i think people broadly will be behind this but yeah i think there's a lot of detail within there which firms will need help with and Whilst it was a 240-odd page document, I think the most useful parts really, I think about the first 60 pages were basically a repeat of the the first season. So if you needed to catch up and hadn't read the first paper, that was useful. There were some really, really nerdy draft rules, which only the real geeks will get into. But then about two-thirds of the way, and it turns into draft guidance examples of what they might think are good and poor practice and i think the more the merrier on that one the more, the more that comes through on that the better so yeah lot, lot, lots to be getting on with i guess on a positive side of things this will help the advice sector help financial services generally become recognized much more of it as a kind of a, a profession that consumers can trust continuous improvement better outcomes and all the rest of that i guess if you're negative it perhaps kind of gives the FCA a bit of a reset of rules to enable them to start really taking firms to task around all of this and a a nice new set of rules, set of weapons to go and refer people to enforcement if needed. Do you guys see this? I'm really interested in what you said there because you talked a lot about the advisory firms. Do you see this as aimed primarily at advisory firms or at the manufacturers? Is this this a distribution question or a manufacturing question? So my, my take would be it's very much upstream. It's manufacturers. They're the ones I think it will give the, the real attention. I, I remember two, three years ago when prod was about to be implemented, around about this time, the kind of the turn of the year, every provider, every manufacturer I spoke with was phoning up kind of saying, wow, we're so busy, we're, we're neck down in prod, this is an enormous thing, loads doing here, and particularly some of the firms who have kind of manufacturer and distributor roles. And then you speak to an advisor and they were, yeah, what's prod? I've never even heard of it, let alone done done anything with it. Simon. And I suspect you might see that same dynamic coming through in the coming months. Yeah, Simon, what's your take on that? So my take on it is actually a little bit different to Mike's. And it Go on, tell him he's wrong. Well, he is wrong. And I'll tell you why he's wrong. Uh, no, Mike, uh, Mike actually made a, a really sort of interesting point couple of weeks ago about this. Essentially, financial services and, and, and in particular sort of financial services regulation by its sort of nature leads to a sort of reasonably myopic viewpoint of the regulatory landscape in that when a new piece of regulation comes out, people automatically think that it is targeted specifically at their sort of industry and doesn't sort of take due account of the fact that the FCA's regulatory universe is massive, Mm. right? It is gigantic. And I think if you actually look at the application of the consumer duty and where there is clear and obvious harm existing in the market, be it through sort of the information asymmetries uh, that exist between provider and consumer, be it sort of, you know, as, as Mike sort of points out, from manufacturers and sort of what they're doing. I actually think that a lot of the harm that the SEA sort of sees crystallizing in the market is actually happening pretty much independent 
of this industry, our industry. So while I think he is right that the focus is very much on product manufacturers and it being an upstream thing, in reality, the areas of sort of harm that it is looking to address, I think, are sort of very much in the consumer credit space, in the banking space, in in areas like that, rather than sort of the traditional advisory wealth management space, just because I think those markets are less developed and also traditionally less focused on the consumer. So do you think advisory firms and the kind of traditional product manufacturers, the pension providers, the platforms they shouldn't be too anxious about this because because from what you're saying that they are mostly doing the right thing already and this is just a kind of codification of this is how you can be excellent to your customers but really their attention is elsewhere basically yeah i mean our view of this ever since the first consultation has largely been that there are basically three questions arising from the consumer duty and i think the first one is are we as a firm able to meet what is expected of us? And our analysis has always been that by dint of operating under advice permissions, firms were largely discharging their responsibilities under principles six and seven and TCF at a superior sort of standard to what would be expected of them anyway by dint of being operating under advice permissions. And if you see the consumer duty as that, which we do, then yes, our, our view is that whilst there are implementation challenges and basically firms will have to review their processes and with that will come cost mm. in terms of actual changes that are needed, they should be reasonably well inoculated from them. The second question is, and I think this is sort of the big, big if, is whether or not it will make any difference, right? Mm. Because I think there is an argument to sort of say, well, this is a policy which is seeking to target harm that is crystallizing in the market. In most instances, firms are trying to do the right thing. Firms have significant reporting responsibilities. They have significant controls and processes in place to ensure that they are doing the right thing. So by bringing in these regulations, there is a significant, significant chance that what the FCA is basically doing is making firms that are already trying and are doing the right thing do more than they were doing at significant cost, whilst allowing firms that either cannot or will not do the right thing, whilst allowing those to basically continue doing what they were doing and have done for, for the last however long they've been in business. And then the challenge for the SEA goes on to how are you going to enforce that? And is your supervisory and enforcement approach going to be of a sufficient standard to ensure that the consumer duty does have a tangible impact on the market? And then the third question, and this is, I think, the area of concern for us, and it is the application of the consumer duty as it applies to cases that go under the FOS. Huh. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask you guys about FOS. Go on, yeah. yeah. And that would sort of be the concern for us going forward, because obviously, you know, whilst the FCA can set its expectations to the FOS, the FOS is not sort of responsible to the FCA. Mm. And the way in which it interprets cases 
could be very different to the way in which a firm interprets a case, a way in which a firm interprets what is reasonable when communicating to an individual, what is reasonable in terms of the outcome that the individual receives. And our concern basically comes down to the inherent subjectivity and willingness of the regulations as set out and how they could be interpreted going forward in instances yeah. where it goes to the false. Yeah. And that would be the actual concern for this industry rather than the are we going to could be compliant with it concern. Interesting. Um, and you talked earlier on about the costs. You know, the FCA's estimate of costs are pretty hefty. You know, they're talking about sort of 700 million up to two and a half billion as industry costs and you know ballpark 100 million a year ongoing annual costs that's that's not insignificant like you one you know one of the thoughts in my mind was well okay it's all very well the fca saying this what's going to happen when it lands on foz's desk because foz has form at interpreting the world in a different way to the fca and that has to be a concern for firms i guess there's also the arguments that's made through through some of the stuff that came out a couple of weeks ago that part of the aim of consumer duty is to try and address some of these issues upstream, which might might be a little bit of a kind of a simplistic view perhaps. But yeah, if the industry was genuinely always putting consumer outcomes at the centre of their business and they were and it's doing everything that the consumer duty proposals come through, then that reduces the need ultimately perhaps for complaints and I mean, there's always going to be issues there, but yeah, deal with it, I guess, on the, as I said, up, upstream addressing the source rather than necessarily focusing just on getting the compensation side of things up and running. I think that's partly why they've kicked out the, or, or removed kind of the private right of action yeah. suggestions that were in the, in, the, in the first paper. I wonder if that kind of felt that was like in the too difficult pile and we'll leave that to phase two of the project naturally anyway but i do think the the argument of yeah let's see actually if these new rules this new policy can actually make some difference yeah it's probably worth doing there's probably a lot of justification behind that argument i think so two really important measures of success for the industry one is will this lead to a reduction in fscs levies and compensation claims so that's my first question. And then alongside that is one of the justifications the FCA put forward for doing all of this is that it will lead to better reputation for the industry, increased trust in the industry, something you guys touched on earlier on, that over time, our standing in consumers' eyes will go up because everyone will see what, what fine upstanding fellows we are. So two questions there, you know, positive outcomes from an industry's point of view. Really interested in both your thoughts on, are we going to deliver on either of those? Yeah, I'll, I'll take the second one, I think. And the trust and all the rest of it, as I said earlier, it's the biggest issue, I think, in terms of, of advice gap and getting people engaged with the industry and all the rest of it. We did some research a few months ago for one of our clients at the Lancat Open Money, looking at advice gap. And it was trust, it was reputation, it was... The inability, I think, of consumers to distinguish kind of the, the nuances within financial services of the difference between a, an advisor, a provider, a wealth manager, and you name it, from a banker, from anybody else associated with financial services. Right? Yeah, exactly. 
exactly and there's kind of there's a a lot of issues come a lot we could do a whole podcast on that in in itself i think cost sensitivity falls behind that so quite often people talk about advice being expensive and that's a barrier it is a barrier but it is behind very much in second place behind trust so i think if if you're going to do anything about advice and getting people getting better outcomes and all of those kind of high level grandiose objectives trust is the one you have to try and pick off and and address that's not going to be a binary overnight moment there is never going to be anything where you can suddenly say that's it yeah you can now trust financial services it needs to be kind of day by day it needs to be kind of built into the culture of what people are trying to do so so they're continuously they're trying to self-improve and deliver the best outcomes and i think actually this from what i can see of consumer duty i think there's a lot of work to get it implemented right and there's a lot of things which perhaps need to evolve and Particularly, I'm sure when when Simon asks answers the question on the FSCS side of things, that might be part of it. But I think having a set of kind of principles in place with some really clear rules and clear expectations of what the regulator thinks it represents a good outcome, and if the industry can be seen to embrace that and get behind it and actually support those outcomes, and I think actually that should be a positive thing. And as I said a moment ago, there's always going to be grumbles about regulation and implementing it and getting behind it. But I think deep down, most people I speak with are are kind of supportive of, of, of this work. Interesting. Yeah, though, as you say, reputation takes time to build, doesn't it? Yeah. Simon, what are your thoughts on the uh, compensation costs? My own view is that I, I don't think this will lead to uh, downward pressure on FSCS levies, but I don't think it's really intended to because, you know, going back to the point that I sort of made earlier, I, I think you have to look at the consumer duty more in the realms of the FCA's transformation as a forward-looking regulator, right? So this is sort of additional kind of tool in its toolbox and it is sort of the underlying principle of sort of how firms should operate and what it sort of expects of firms. But I think if you look alongside that and the work that it is trying to do and the things that it is trying to implement, I think we will see downward pressure on the FSES, but probably only in the next 10 to 15 years. And to that end, you know, you have to look at sort of the work that it's doing on authorizations. You have to look at the work that it's doing on financial promotions. But I think genuinely the most important piece of work and the reason why I think the timeline is sort of reasonably long is the work that the regulator is doing towards moving towards being a more data-led regulator and if it can use data correctly rather than just sort of asking firms to fill out surveys if it can use that data correctly to identify where harm may be crystallizing then it will be able to intervene well before sort of the the horse has bolted the open stable door if that sort of makes sense and and i think that is sort of the area the area which i think firms should sort of be most excited by if you can be excited by whatever it is <laughs> that the regulator is doing. a bit of a stretch. Yeah. But the consumer duty 
as an initiative in and of itself, will it have any sort of impacts on, on FSCS levies? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think you could maybe make the argument that if it leads to significant claims on the Forsen firm's failings as a result, then it might actually have a sort of a negative impact. I don't know if that's necessarily the case. So how much of a an imposition is the question of the outcomes measurement stuff going to be? You know, you talked about the FCA being able to gather better data and they can use that as part of their supervisory work. So mm. there's clearly, you know, there's built into this this whole package of proposals is this idea that we're going to be looking at the outcomes and that requires, that's going to require firms to track those outcomes and to ensure, particularly from a manufacturer's point of view, that the product they're building over here, and you know, you've got product governance committees that apparently haven't been good enough in what they've been doing already, but the product we're designing over here is going to get sold to the right consumers over there who are going to understand stuff and are going to be able to, to question stuff. And that's all going to require tracking. How much of a shift is that going to require for firms? I think the issue with a lot of the outcomes are that they're subjective. So in particular, the kind of the potential for having a value for money assessment kind of more broadly across the board, similar to the one which which asset managers have been um, dealing with for the last the last couple of years and is now coming seen. into workplace pensions as well you know they're not finished on that one yet yeah i think there's lessons to learn from the asset management sector where there's a real broad range of approaches to that i mean ultimately they're all marking their own homework so there's always going to be some kind of i guess fundamental issue with that but we've seen firms who have produced some really good clear documents which can be read probably by a consumer and are reasonably understandable there's other ones who have like an 86 page document hidden about 500 links down on their on their website as well but i think it's the subjectivity around it so yeah what does actually represent value for money what represents helpful customer services and i guess there's, there's you overlay that with the nature of financial services long-term investments where in a lot of cases, investors tend to have a moment of truth, if you like, with their provider. So I've been invested with my pension provider for 30 years now and I've had no issues whatsoever with my customer service or whatever. But then there's going to be a moment of truth at some point later on in my life when when I'm going to need to speak to them or worse, my relatives are going to need to speak to them, that, that type of thing. And if the provider drops the ball once at that particular moment, that tends to frame, frame if you like, the overall perception of what's going on. And financial advisors, to be fair, taking it back to, I guess, our heartland of the Lancat, they tend to be really good at that. That's when they jump into action and help their clients through, I don't know, probate and all the unpleasantness that goes on with that type of thing. And yeah, how you actually then build a, a service and run a business, run a, if you're a provider, run a business, which ensures that that's always going to be the case. And you're, to quote one of the cross-cutting rules, you're avoiding foreseeable harm to retail customers. Yeah, I think that that's potentially quite tricky given the subjective nature of what we're talking about here. Simon, do you want to come in on that? I think everything Mike said is is right. And, and you know, one man, you know, something that it provides value to sort of one client may not sort of provide value to the other. But if, I guess if the, if the firm has not taken reasonable steps because they've now cut that out of the rules, but if, if a firm has done what is reasonable and to the best of their intentions sort of communicated it correctly to the client and the client understood what it is that they were getting and the firm is happy with the processes that they have undertaken in selling that particular product to the individual, then it should just be a case of, well, 
we were right and you were wrong. But again, the concern then comes to sort of how that is interpreted should the individual have recourse for a complaint. The issue of communicating it to the client, I think, is the area where a lot of firms may have problems. And again, not in the heartland of the land cap, but sort of adjacent to that. I think this is going to be a particular problem for direct-to-consumer platforms in that the information that they consider they may have to provide to a consumer in order to best understand what it is that they are buying, to best understand everything about the product, may get to a point where the firm will be of the view that in order to adequately explain something, they may have to jump into the realms of advice as opposed to guidance. The FCA has sort of gone out of its way to sort of say, well, no, we absolutely don't think that that is the case and it should not be reasonable for you to do so. But there is no way to sort of really make that judgment. And in and the I paper, they specifically say, you know, we're not moving the, the advice boundary at this point. Well, well they're not moving the, the advice boundary at this point and obviously it's not sort of in their gift to do so and maybe we'll find out more about that in a forthcoming financial services bill. So to, 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 they, they did it hint at that in the investment strategy paper, didn't they? That, and that seemed particularly relevant for those direct-to-consumer platforms. Yes. Like, you know, so, so it does feel like there might be a bit of movement coming there? I, I think it's sort of increasingly the case that there sort of has to be. And, you know, obviously sort of one of the vast multitude of opportunities presented to us by leaving the European Union is that we can look at that boundary and we can sort of look to relax it. We can maybe look at whether or not the current suitability processes at, as outlined in MIFID 2 are maybe fit for purposes for individuals with less complex needs. And maybe you don't just need advice and guidance. Maybe you can have something that sits in between and maybe you can also sort of strengthen what is permissible under guidance in order to sort of make it easier for platforms to support their customers by suggesting that they maybe switch in instances mm. where it isn't considered that the product that they are currently invested in provides good value. But also, you know, there may be instances where like an organization like PensionWise can actually say, well, based on your specific characteristics, why don't you get this in a way that is permissible from a regulatory perspective? And sitting in between all of that, Maybe there is an option for something akin to simplified advice, which maybe looks a bit more like robo-advice, but without the robot. <laughs> okay, interesting concept. Yeah. But I, th I think this consumer understanding outcome and the, as you say, the yeah. communication challenge that sits within that is, is a really good example of moving in the right direction and there'll be implementation challenges along the way. But if we can get over those, if the industry can get over those, then it really it's going to be a real positive step. It's a far better place than, so I know, I, I can remember historically a D2C platform which would send out its terms and conditions document on a CD to their clients and it was something like a 72-page PDF. And that's obviously technically compliant, but of absolutely no use whatsoever to anybody to enable them. I mean, no one's going to even read it, let alone understand the the documentation which they're getting. They Lots reference sludge practices in the paper, yeah. don't they? But, I mean, but this kind of goes back to the point that I was making at the start, which is that the really interesting thing about the consumer duty is that it just reveals this tension between doing what is compliant 
and what is in the best interest of the consumer as a whole. Because, you know, where an advisor sort of doing their annual review process and sort of sending out all the documents and making the individual sign and read all the forms that they were supposed to do, then it is technically compliant for them to do so in a way which is basically printing out 50 forms and sort of saying, well, there you go, like, you know, and can you sign this to tell me that you've understood it? Whereas what does that mean now in the context of actually ensuring that the consumer kind of gets the best outcome, understands what they have been sort of presented to them and sort of basically doesn't... Ensuring that the consumer has the best will about them and the best sort of understanding going forward and how does that sort of go off against what is required of firms from a compliance perspective? And I'm not sure they necessarily meet up in the middle. Mm. Yeah, not, notwithstanding Boris's Peppa Pig argument a few weeks ago, I think one of the best examples I've seen of getting that kind of thing right is, is actually a lot of the government websites these days where you, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're trying to apply for some lateral flow tests or, you know, renewing a driving license or whatever. They've got really good at putting nice, clean, simple pages with one question on and two buttons, push A, push B, and that kind of very sequential process of question and answer actually I think is a, a really good example of how you can walk people through what could be quite a complex process in a really simple way. And I think there's a lesson there. For, interesting, there's a lesson there from the public sector to the industry, I think. There is absolutely a lesson there. but And that kind of then speaks to who the real winners of the consumer duty are going to be. Because setting out that choice architecture is onerous and it is expensive and it almost certainly requires third-party input. Mm. And you wonder if really what we will have achieved at the end of this is sort of consumers receiving similar outcomes to the ones that they did beforehand, firms having to go through significant change processes which they were unprepared for, and an army of third-party consultants being sort of put out to work in order to explore new ways in which firms and firms and advisors can best communicate the quality of their product to individuals in a way in which they best understand. Interesting. So thank you for that thought. So it um, kind of leads nicely on to, to, to I, think, I think, my last question. In a really reductive manner, just kind of distill everything we've talked about down is this going to make the world a better place? Is this is this a positive step forward? And I, I guess just also as, as a kind of sweep up, you know, is there any aspect of the paper that we haven't talked about that we should? Who wants to jump think, in on that? I think for me, is it going to make the world a better place? I, I, I think as I said a moment ago, it, it doesn't feel like this is going to be transformational overnight. But I think that's the point. It's about looking on the positive side, building a really kind of forcing everybody and Remembering what we said about the scope, this includes firms which don't have a direct relationship with the customer. It, it goes way beyond just financial advisors. Yeah, bring everybody up to kind of the, the standards that you would expect of a profession. And that, in my view, is, is continuously, genuinely focusing on better outcomes and having that kind of that culture of continuous improvement in place. And again, if you do that, great. And I think everybody can benefit everyone can be a better place over time but it'll be exercising continuous improvement rather than a big overnight change on the downside if it doesn't then i think it does give the fca some pretty clear rules to and as we just mentioned firms who have been kind of technically compliant and giving people 72 page cd roms of terms and conditions but that's yeah your heart really isn't in the right place here 
I think consumer duty probably gives the, the regulator, if they wish, to, to start taking enforcement action off the, off the back of some new rules in that, in that respect. From my perspective, will it make the world a better place like you want it to? I think that's the interesting thing. Everybody that you speak to about the consumer duty who is a little bit down on it, and I realise that over the last 45 minutes I've been sort of extremely down on it. You should stop watching the England cricket team, Simon. (laughs) uh, 17 for two, brain stop play. Um, Is down on it, but also recognises that it is a good thing, right? We want it we want yes. it to work because the reason it exists, I mean, it, it exists for two reasons, but I mean, the main reason that it exists is that financial services traditionally lets down consumers. Yes. Not because it necessarily, obviously in some cases it does, but also because consumers just do not understand financial services and, and, and financial services can inadvertently take advantage of that. I think the use of inadvertently there might be a little generous at times. I'm I'm being extremely generous, Smooth. Uh, So you want it to be a success. The broader question is whether or not it will be. And I think that is entirely reliant on whether or not the FCA is actually able to make it so. Because the reason we are down on it is not because we think it is a bad thing. It is more broadly because... It is indicative of a regulatory approach from the FCA whereby when they identify harm, what they basically seek to do is write new rules and implement them at extraordinary cost to the industry Mm. rather than seeking to use the rules that they already have available to them better. And to us, the implementation of the consumer duty is another example of that. So, great, let's do it. Let's hope that it's a success. But let's kind of be realistic about the fact that for it to be so, the FCA needs to actually be able to sort of take it seriously and use the other powers that it has available to them to ensure that the significant costs, the incredibly short implementation times that the FCA has set out in the paper, which are going to be a huge struggle for very, very large firms in particular, are basically worthwhile. And I'm not sure that that's going to be the case. Interesting, yeah. And that comes with opportunity costs for those firms as well because they have to put down tools on other jobs Precisely. to do this. Yeah. I'm going to take the optimistic element of your response there and say it's, uh, you know, the, the potential good may come out of this. But I think your, your caveats are, 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 you know, and your concerns are well made. Guys, I really appreciate you both for walking me through this. It's been really interesting. And thank you. We'll call it there. Thanks both. Cheers, guys. Have a good Christmas. Christmas.